There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Samuel chapter 16, please, and she can stand when you get that. First Samuel chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons invited them and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Father, we've had such a great time here so far this morning just with our music and our worship and the fellowship of the saints. Now, Lord, we turn to your word. We just pray, Father, that you would anoint these lips of clay and prepare our hearts, Lord, for what we hear today, that we will put it into practice. Make us more like you, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For whatever reason, people like to compare and judge one another. I ran across this list of comparing men with women as I was putting together our sermon. It begins, women. Women are honest, loyal, and forgiving. They are smart, knowing that knowledge is power. But they still know how to use their softer side to make a point. Women want to be the best for their family, their friends, and themselves. Their hearts break when a friend dies. They have sorrow at the loss of a family member. Yet they are strong even when they think there is no strength left. Women come in all sizes, all colors, and all shapes. They live in homes, apartment buildings, and cabins. They drive, fly, run, walk, or email you to show you how much they care about you. The heart of a woman is what makes the world spin. Women do more than just give birth. They bring joy and hope. They give compassion and ideals. They give moral support to their family and their friends. 
All they want back is a hug, a smile, and for you to do the same to people that you come in contact with. Wow. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? But wait till you hear the character traits of the men. Men. Men are good at lifting heavy stuff and sometimes killing spiders. No, that was it. <laughs> I feel like one of those cows who was grazing alongside the highway when a semi-truck of milk made its way past them. On the side of the truck, it read in big red letters, pasteurized, homogenized, standardized, vitamin A added. One cow turned to the other and said, kind of makes you feel insignificant, doesn't it? But regardless, in today's lesson, we will see that even the great prophet Samuel will fall prey to judging and comparing by just what is on the outside. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided myself a king among his sons. An outline of verse 1 could be, Saul was rejected, Samuel was dejected, but God had selected. Quit your mourning and moaning, Samuel. There's work to do, God said. But I have reason to mourn. My heart is broken, Samuel could have replied. I regret it too, but I've moved on, God might have replied. And you know what? We too need to move on. Yes, there are incidents in our lives that are hurtful, even regrettable, sad things, hard times, raw deals, pain, problem, and disappointments. But we must move on. Why? Because we serve a God who is on the move. And so if I remain in the past problem or in the past disappointment, I can mess out on the present move of what God wants to do in my life. But back to our story. We see that Saul was still in the office, and even though he is now unfit to lead the nation, and we see that Samuel also has broken fellowship with him. And in his grief, Samuel must have felt like a dismal failure as a father, a spiritual leader, and a mentor to the new king. The word translated mourn means to mourn for the dead, and it reveals to us the depth of Samuel's sorrow. The great prophet Samuel, and make no mistake, he was a great prophet. But he was not unaffected by the calamity over which he presided. We may reasonably assume that Samuel had developed an affection for Saul over these years. Saul would suffer for his failure, and Samuel wept. More than that, Samuel cared deeply for God's people. Remember back in chapter 12 how he said to them, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Now, Israel is going to suffer as a result of Saul's failure, and this made Samuel weep. Something like Samuel's agony would be experienced both by Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Jesus, when he wept over the city of Jerusalem, and the Apostle Paul, when he would say, excuse me, get it up here, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, in my heart, in Romans 9, 2, concerning the Jewish people. All of these men grieved because of the consequence of sin, particularly on the people of God. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 tells us there is a time to mourn, but there is also a time to act. And for Samuel, that time had arrived. 
In spite of how he felt about himself, Samuel's work wasn't over yet, for God wanted him to anoint the new king, David, the son of Jesse. If Saul was the people's king, then David was God's king. The event recorded in these next few chapters are going to indicate clearly that God's hand was unquestionably on David, who was the leader or was his, the leader of his choice the whole time. We see from verse 1 that God instructed Samuel to go to Bethlehem and select one of the sons of Jesse to be the new king. And I have to think that Samuel must have been wondering what God was doing at this time. Why would God be sending him to the family of Jesse? Jesse wasn't even a pure Jew. His grandmother, Ruth, was a despised Moabite. I'm sure Samuel also wondered who the new king might be, but at this point of time, God didn't give him the name of the future king. The Lord just says, go to Jesse, and then I'll tell you what to do. That has been my experience also. We have to take that first step before God will reveal to us the next step. But that makes sense, though, doesn't it? Why would God give me any further revelation if I'm unwilling to take that first step of faith into whatever he has called me to do? I think of the night that the disciples were in a storm so severe that they were sure that they were all going to drown. And then out of nowhere, they saw Jesus walking on the water. Peter, at the master's command, steps out of the boat and actually begins to walk on the water. However, that never would have happened had he not taken that first initial step of faith. In New Testament vernacular, we would call that walking by faith. Look at verse 2 with me. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. I can fully understand why Samuel was a little reluctant to get involved in all this king business again. Reasonably, he figured that Saul would be none too happy if he went and appointed another king. And so Samuel says, How shall I go? If Saul hears about this, he's going to kill me. And we need to realize to get to Ramah to Bethlehem, Samuel would have to have passed through Gibeah, which was where Saul was. And it would seem at this point that relations between Saul and Samuel had broken down completely. Samuel may have had God's authority over Saul, but as we saw in chapter 15, but Saul had the troops and might well use them if Samuel took active steps in what he considered to be betrayal. Saul was willing at this point to do whatever it took to hang on to his power. He had become cold and calculating, a hard-hearted, hard-headed man that God could no longer use, or what God would call in the Old Testament, stiff-necked. Yet we all know that we live in a world full of hard heads. According to recent statistics, there are about 1,600 people in the U.S. who are members of the Flat Earth Research Society of America. These are, of course, people who refuse to believe that the earth is round, but they insist it is flat. Their president, Charles K. Johnson, explains his view this way. I've been a flat earther all my life. 
When I saw the globe in grade school, I couldn't accept it. It was illogical. I know what you're thinking. What a bunch of hard-headed people. But my friends, it's even more hard-headed when we deliberately choose to disobey the Lord. When you start looking at Saul's 40-year reign in Israel, it is clear that he was the exact opposite of what David would be in his service to God. Saul was a man of compromise and had no character. Saul was a man of fear at the expense of courage. Saul was a man of convenience rather than conviction. Saul was a man of confusion instead of consistency. Now, God had marked all of this, and we know that the longer we live, the more submitted to God that we should be. But this was not the case with King Saul. The longer he lived, the more rebellious to God that he became. Saul was the tallest man in Israel outwardly, but inwardly he had the smallest heart of them all. Verse 4, please. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. The elders in Bethlehem knew that Saul and Samuel were alienated, so the arrival of Samuel, of course, would give them great alarm. Was Samuel recruiting followers to resist Saul? Would Saul interpret his presence in their little town as a declaration of war? It says the elders trembled at his coming. When a prophet showed up at your door, it was usually not a good thing. In the previous chapter, if you remember, Samuel personally executed King Agag. If you weren't here for that, Agag thought the possibility of his execution had passed. One version says that Agag came cheerily to the prophet Samuel as if to say, I knew you guys were only joking about killing me. I knew you were only kidding. I knew it was just Agag. In my almost 28 years of Christian, I've personally known only one or two people in that time that had a gift of discernment coupled with the word of knowledge. I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes if you thought there was unconfessed sin in your life, they could be a bit uncomfortable to be around. I'm not talking about the charlatans who say in the midst of 6,000 people, I feel the Lord is saying to me, someone here has a backache. That's not a spiritual gift. That's just simply playing the odds. I'm talking about a lady who told a guy, the Lord knows about the magazines under your bed, and he is not pleased. That wasn't me, by the way. I got problems, but not that one. What I'm saying is when we usually think about a truly spiritual person, we think of someone who is kind and loving. And that certainly should be part of it. But there is also the spiritual person who, when you see them walking up your driveway, you immediately do a self-evaluation then decide if you need to hide behind the couch or not. Not you guys, of course. I'm talking about other churches where the people aren't perfect. (laughs) Verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. 
For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In the culture of that day, it was always the oldest son who inherited the positions of leadership. So it's no wonder that when Eliab comes before him, Samuel immediately assumes that he is the one. Not only that, from Samuel's point of view, this tall, good-looking young man seemed to be the kind of man that God would choose to be king. However, do you remember the last tall, good-looking man we heard about in the story? It was Saul, wasn't it? Allow me to interject here once again. I will never understand Israel's fixation with height when it comes to selecting a king. Who cares if the guy can dunk a basketball? Can he run the kingdom? But that's just something else I'm working out with my therapist. Now notice what the Lord says at the end of verse 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Or maybe we could put it this way. Man looks at the cover, but God looks at the core. What crazy is to me is we put so much emphasis on the exterior, and that is the one thing in our life that is most quickly fading. Listen to these words out of 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. What strikes me there is that word decaying. I mean... I know I don't look as good as I used to, but I don't feel like I'm decaying, but I am. I'm slowly rotting right before your very eyes. You may be even thinking right now, he looks worse than he did last week, but you're just too nice to say anything to me. But as that verse reads, it tells us at the end what people should be more concerned about, and it is the inner man or the inner woman or the inner Bruce Jenner, whatever the case may be. A little slow. The thing we need to keep in the forefront of our mind is that when God looks at us, he looks at us from the inside. He is an interior decorator. He always checks the inside first. But we are so apt to judge people, even in the Christian circles, by their looks or their pocketbooks or their status symbol or the car they drive, the home they live in, or the position that they occupy. Yet God never judges anyone on that basis. He is telling Samuel not to pay any attention to the outward appearance because God is only going to be looking at the heart. It was William Blake who wrote, This life-stemmed windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through the eye. Accordingly, when God sees, he does not just see things with the eyes as we do, taking in only impressions. God sees according to his heart. That is, God's purposes are always determined by his own will. He sees according to his own intentions. The Lord told Samuel, the Lord does not see using only his eyes, taking in impressions, but he sees deep into the heart. Now, Samuel may have looked at their face and forms, but the Lord was the one that would examine their hearts. I've seen people with tattoos that say, only God can judge me. What they're saying is, no man or no church has the right to judge my life, but only God. What they don't realize is how truly horrifying that should be, since God alone is the only one who knows how truly wicked 
a person is. God alone can search the human heart and know what a person's motives really are. Verse 8, please. So Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Picture in your mind the seven sons of, Je- of Jesse standing there. Apparently, they were magnificent specimens of humanity. In the Bible, the number seven is always the number of perfection. And so these sons of Jesse seem to me to be the perfection of the flesh. But the perfection of the flesh is always rejected in heaven. I love how Max Lucado envisions this scene. He writes, The whole scene has a dog show feel to it. Shamel examines the boys one at a time like canines on leashes, more than once ready to give the blue ribbon, but each time God stops him. Eliab the oldest seems the logical choice. Envision him as the village Casanova, wavy hair, strong jawed. He wears tight jeans and has a piano keyboard smile. This is the guy, Samuel thinks. Wrong, God says. Abinadab enters his brother and contestant number two. You'd think a GQ model had just walked in. Italian shoes, I'm sorry, Italian suit, alligator skin shoes, jet black, oiled back hair. Want a classy king? Abinadab has what you want. But God's not into classy. Samuel asks for brother number three, Shema. He's bookish, studious. Could use a charisma transplant, but busting with brains. Has a degree from State University and his eyes on a postgraduate program in Egypt. Jesse whispers to Samuel, Victorian of Bethlehem High. Samuel's impressed, but God isn't. Seven sons pass. Seven sons fail. By now, I think I would be pretty frustrated and impatient with Samuel, and maybe even with God as well. Samuel comes and says he's looking for the next king. I present to you my fine boys, and you reject every single one of them. I would think that maybe Samuel had made a mistake, or maybe even that God had made a mistake. But have you ever felt like that, impatient with God? Have you ever felt that perhaps God had made a mistake in your life by what he was doing, the choices that he had made for your life? I know that I have. We pray honestly that God's will would be done, but we would sure like it if he would hurry himself up just a little bit. The people of Israel, we know, often became impatient with God. In Numbers chapter 21, it records that while the people were moving through the desert, they became impatient with Moses and God. They complained about the lack of food and water and desert life. Verse 6 of that chapter tells us that God sent venomous snakes among the people, and many Israelites died. Eventually, the people repented and asked Moses and God for help, and God, of course, delivered them. Yet the lesson remains for us, does it not? We, too, will get bit if we become impatient with God and the choices that he has laid out for our individual lives. As we begin to look at the life of David coming up, let me ask you a question to get you thinking a little bit. Who does God choose to accomplish his purposes? Let me say it another way. What kind of person does God pick to do his supernatural work in this world? 
Does God choose the quote-unquote good people who have it all together? The really talented people, smart people, the people who come from good family backgrounds, charismatic or outgoing people? What does God look for when he's choosing for someone to do his work? God does not choose by the world's standards. God does not look at the outside packaging. Rather, God looks on the inside. God uses one measuring stick above all others to choose people to accomplish his plans. And it has nothing to do with that list that I just mentioned. The one and only thing that God looks at is the heart of that individual. He chooses people who are sold out for God, whose motives and intentions are focused on God's desires above their own. God is looking for people who love him and have a heart to serve God without fault to what they may receive in return. How do I know? David. You've heard the old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover and beauty is only skin deep. I read this week that someone did a study of 90 famous people who were photographed by Yushof Karsh and included in his book, The Faces of Greatness. Of the 90 faces that he took pictures of, 70 were judged to be unattractive because of moles, warts, freckles, acne, and visible scars. Yet these were the same people who were deemed as great as we reflected upon history. In other words, image really isn't everything. In fact, image is nothing. But this principle goes against everything our society seems to affirm. We exalt those with intelligence, charisma, giftedness, popularity, and power. Look at the way political campaigns are run. Everything is scripted to just make a good impression. Candidates know that people tend to vote on the basis of appearance and 10-second sound bites. Little is done to discern the heart and character of a candidate. Back in the 1960 election, Richard Nixon and John Kennedy changed the way that candidates campaigned through the televised debates. Nixon's dour expression, his 5 o'clock shadow, and his constant sweating, some people said he wasn't feeling well, versus Kennedy's warm smile and engaging television persona, led most people who watched the debate to conclude that Kennedy had won the debate. Most who only listened to the radio, however believed that Nixon won the debate. And presidential, presidential campaigning has focused on image ever since that time. In James chapter 2, we're given a section that basically teaches us that favoritism is forbidden by God. Listen to the words. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit on the floor here by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? A good verse for all the health, wealth, gospel, but I won't get into that. And inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. That's what the word prejudice means, by the way. If you break apart that word, it simply means to prejudge. In other words, I have prejudged you 
on your race, religion, or gender, or whatever, before I have no one single thing about what really makes you tick. Let it never be forgotten that glamour is not greatness. Applause is not fame. Prominence is not eminence. The man of the hour is not usually going to be the man of the ages. A stone may sparkle, but that doesn't make it a diamond. And people may have money, but that doesn't necessarily make them a success. And yet, we can get it so wrong, can't we? I wonder who we would have chosen as the 12 disciples. In closing, let me read something to you that I came across concerning just that. It says, To Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcrafter's shop, Nazareth, from the Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem. Subject, staff aptitude test. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also have arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not seem to have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and innovative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new adventure. So what is God looking for when he looks for a person to use? Come back next week to find out. And more we know that Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And the very next verse tells us, Lord, that you know it. You know our hearts, Lord. Even our own very hearts can condemn us, can trick us. And so, Lord, we place our hearts in your hand this morning. And I'll echo David and say, search me and know me. And tell me if there's anything evil within me. We pray that for each of us, Lord. If there are things in our heart that need to be brought out into the open and to the light, that you would begin to reveal that to us. Ask in Christ's name. Amen.